Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. We are your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. Thank you for joining us. Before we introduce tonight's guest, um, I, our latest novel, The Exorcism, or sorry, The Ravencrest Saga Exorcism, <laughs> is available now in ebook and paperback, and we are deep into the fourth Ravencrest tale, Shadowland. Uh, we release Ravencrest in serialized format first, and you can download parts one and two, titled Poltergeist and Strange Encounters, today. Uh, part three of Shadowland, Dark Dreams, just hit e-readers about an hour ago, and here's Tamara to tell you a little about that. Yeah, you can get that today, too. Um, so, this episode, New Secrets. A dark elemental has escaped the forest to stalk the land of Ravencrest Manor, and now Riley Doring, keeper of the Raven Woods, must do anything he can to stop it from hunting Belinda, its unsuspecting prey. To protect her, he must reveal secrets that have been his alone for centuries. He wears his age well. New yearnings. Belinda isn't <laughs> quite herself these days. Her senses are heightened, as are her passions. She thinks not only of Eric Manning, but casts her eyes once again on Nathan Aubrey, Eric's handsome driver. New seductions. There's no peaceful sleep for the inhabitants of Ravencrest. Some dreams warn of peril, and others promise pleasures unknown. As Belinda stands at her window, gazing out at the Raven Woods, she longs to take a midnight swim in Nyad Pond and meet the woman who beckons to her and did really nasty things to her in her dream. Let me tell you. It's true. We love, we love writing nasty dreams. <laughs> we do. All right. Uh, if you want to catch up on the Ravencrest saga, you can get Ghost of Ravencrest, which is book one, The Witches of Ravencrest, which is book two, and Exorcism, book three, in paper or e-back ebook at Amazon or anywhere <laughs> books are sold. Uh, all right. Uh, you are listening to Thorne and Cross, Hunter Nights Live. We're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. You can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com and tamarathorne.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thorneandcross.wordpress.com. Uh, if you tweet, our handles are at CrossAlistair and at Tamara Thorne. You can also visit our Hunter Nights Live page on Facebook. And if you're on Instagram, you can find us at at thorneandcross and at official underscore Alistair Cross. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. All right, that out of the way, uh, we are pleased to uh, have tonight's guest back with us. Uh, he's been here a couple times, and I always love having him because there's something new to learn and fascinating. Harold Schechter is an American true crime writer who specializes in serial killers. Uh, he attended the State University of New York in Buffalo, where his Ph.D. director was Leslie Field Fiedler. Uh, he is professor of American literature and popular culture at Queens College of the City University of New York. Uh, he's married to poet Kamiko Hahn and has two daughters from a previous marriage, the writer uh, Lauren Oliver and professor of philosophy Elizabeth Schechter. 
Um, tonight we are going to talk about, amongst other things, um, Harold's latest book, uh, Ripped from the Headlines, The Shocking True Stories Behind the Movie's Most Memorable Crimes. All right. Uh, welcome to the show, Harold. How are yes. you? I'm good. Very glad to be back. Um, by the way, just one slight correction on my biography. I am now a uh-huh. retired professor. Ah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we'll remember nice. that. Yeah. Nice. Oh, yes. That's, yeah, very sweet. Um, yes, right. well, thank you for having me. Um, uh, we're happy to. You are welcome. And this, we love having mm-hmm. you. Thank you. We do. And we love this topic of this book. Mm-hmm. The stories behind movies that we all know and are afraid of. Well, um, what motivated me to write it um, was uh, my awareness that there are all these movies, fictional movies, uh, that people do not realize were based on true crimes. You know, nowadays, uh, well, if we were ever able to go to the movies anymore, <laughs> but, um, you know, <laughs> but up until uh, recently, um, when you went to the movies, it was very common to see a title card at the beginning saying based on true events or, you know, this is a true story. Um, That was rarely done in the past. In fact, it was more common in the past to have a disclaimer uh, saying, you know, this movie is fictional and Ah. any resemblance to real people is coincidental. Um, But in fact, in the old days, screenwriters also turned to sensational uh, crime stories in the newspapers as the inspiration for their movies. Um, and again, there are a lot of movies that people don't realize were inspired by real crimes. So my book, Ripped from the Headlines, examines 40 movies uh, that range from Hollywood classics to cult movies and uh, talks about the movies and then you know, describes the crimes that they were based on. Mm-hmm. Ah. So it's, it's sort of yeah. it's sort of an encyclopedia A to Z. So it's very easy to well, yeah. look up. Well, it is arranged and... alphabetically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my fir- years ago, uh, I actually got into the true crime writing genre. Um, and this is going back scarily enough, about 30 years, uh, <laughs> when I became aware, I was actually researching a book on, uh, researching a book that I wrote on movie special effects. This was right before the CGI revolution. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, in researching the chapter on horror effects, uh, I came across the then little known fact that uh, both Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre had been inspired by a real crime, you know, that of Mm -hmm. Ed Gein in Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, You know, it's much more common knowledge now, but but back 30 years ago, not that many people were aware of it. Um, And that, you know, intrigued me, and and I researched the Gein case. Uh, That became the basis for my first true crime book, uh, Deviant. Um, And that is, in fact, one of the movies that I cover in my book. Um, but mm. again, there are 39 other films that I deal with. Uh-huh. And not, yeah, and not all of them are, in fact, 
well, some of them are serial killer cases, uh, but not yeah. all of them are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, one um, that I'm really curious about is that, that, that I, you know, a lot of these I'm, I'm just kind of looking through. I and I did not know. Um, and and you you can kind of decide how much you want to tell us because we don't want to give you know too much away. If we want people to you know go get the book and learn more. But um, can you tell us a little bit? I'm curious for some reason about the, the, the crime behind um, looking for Mr. Goodbar. I love that book and I had mm. no idea mm-hmm. that there was any yeah. truth. In that. And, you know, uh, yeah, like, well, like it, there yeah. might be. Yeah. Um, yes. That, well, uh, like other movies that I discuss, that one was based on a, on a novel, uh, a best-selling novel by a woman named Judith Rossner called Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and Rossner uh, was inspired to write it uh, by a very sensational murder case uh, that happened in 1973 in New York City. Uh, there was a 27-year-old school teacher, <laughs> excuse me, named Roseanne Quinn, uh, you know, who had been, like the character of the movie, you know, she had been raised in this... Uh, you know, very religious middle-class uh, Catholic household in Queens. Um, and she grew up and, uh, you know, by day um, was a, a teacher um, in a school for deaf children, uh, leading a very, very proper life, prison proper life. Uh, but uh-huh. this, of course, was in the heyday of the swinging 70s. Uh, when there were all these singles bars and so on. And she became a habitue uh, of these um, single bars. And, you know, she was reading, leading, you know, pretty reckless sex life. You know, she would go every night to these bars and pick up guys and bring them home. Uh, she was into rough sex. Uh, anyway, at one point she picked up the wrong guy. She picked up this guy who had been a, a street hustler um, and, uh, you know, they had a sexual encounter and then she told him to get lost and things escalated and he murdered her very, very brutally. Uh, so that became, again, the basis for, uh, you know, the, the Judith Rossner novel was kind ah. of a thinly, yeah, thinly fictionalized version of the Roseanne Quid case. You know, and it became... It was a character study of this woman, but it also was a book about, you know, that whole social scene back then. And, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, and then, and then uh, it was made into this movie. I mean, the movie is very interesting, but in a way, the book is, I think, more interesting because, yeah. it, it, you know, I would actually, I don't know if this is going off track a little, but. Um, when I was a college professor, uh, and teaching my students about, you know, how novels worked and so on, you know, I would talk about the difference between story and plot, you know, story is a story, but plot is how you present the story and how you manipulate the different elements of the story. So in Judith Rossner's original novel, it begins with a discovery of Roseanne Quinn's murder. So, you know, from the first, she ends up. You know, yeah. She comes to a, she mm-hmm. comes to a bad end, and then it becomes a very interesting character study of Roseanne, and also of the you know the particular time and place. 
Um, the movie doesn't do that. The movie, uh, you know, presents the story in straight chronological order. And when the end, you know, when she's murdered, it, it's very, very shockingly presented. Uh, mm-hmm. So it turns it kind of into a, it turns it more into a horror story almost, um, you know, than this complex character study. Uh, but anyway, but that's, uh, that's the answer to your question. Ah. I have one. I'm looking at the table of contents. Murder on the Orient Express. That's based on something that happened. Well, yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the whole actual salute, you know, the whole Poirot stuff on the train, um, mm-hmm. that was obviously Agatha Christie's invention. The part that oh, it was okay. inspired by uh-huh. has to do with um, the, you know, the, the victim, the guy who was killed. Uh, because it turns out he was involved in a case that was very much like, and in fact was based on uh, the very famous uh, uh, kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Oh, um, sure. So, uh, you know, which, you know, many people regard as the, you know, of all the crimes of the century, of the 20th mm-hmm. century, you know, many people regard that as, you know, the, you know, the foremost um, so yeah, but that part and and, and Christie was very very explicitly uh, inspired to create that whole backstory uh, based oh. on the Charles on the on the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Oh, that's fascinating! I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. And and another favorite, arsenic and old lace. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, the thing that's yeah. Well, the thing that's interesting about arsenic and old lace, as I, I mentioned in the book is that it's the, as far as I know, um, it's the only case of serial murder uh, that got turned into a beloved comedy um, <laughs> because uh, it was based on, um, it was based on the case of this woman uh, named Amy uh, Archer Gilligan who ran, uh, you know, this kind of old age home. Uh, you know, she would take, elderly people in and uh, supposedly, you know, and, and for a fairly healthy fee, she would charge them a thousand dollars each with this, which at that time was the equivalent of about $30,000. Wow. Uh, and supposedly, wow. you know, she would provide them, you know, with a place to live out there, you know, live out their lives and take care of them. And then she also promised them a decent burial. Um, mm-hmm. This is going back to, uh, the 19, I think she was I'm trying to remember the date she was arrested. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it was about 1916 or something like that. Uh, but anyway, she started just poisoning all these people, all these people. Um, and uh, I can't remember. I think she was uh, uh, finally accused of murdering 40, 40 people. Um, wow. you know, she would just, you know, she would just take all their money and then kill them. And that, and she became the basis for arsenic and old lace. But what, what's partly interesting to me is to think that there are only men serial killers. And it's mm-hmm. true, you know, that the kind of serial murder we associate with somebody like Jack the Ripper is a mm-hmm. strictly male phenomenon, but there have been a lot of female poisoners who have killed, well, many more people than Jack the Ripper did. And the other mm-hmm. thing people don't understand, partly because of arsenic and old lace, you know, people tend to think of 
poison, you know, old lady, you know, women poison people. Uh-huh. You know, it's this kind of quaint Victorian thing. You know, as you know, in arsenic and yeah. lace, it's about these dotty maiden aunts, you know, who take in old people and then, you know, give them a Show glass them. of arsenic laced <laughs> yeah. elderberry wine. You know, mm-hmm. it all looks very amusing. But, uh, you know, po- you know po- these female serial killers, they, you know, they would subject their victims to prolonged agonizing deaths often. Um, you know, in a way, somebody like Amy Archer Gilligan, one could argue, um, was worse than Jack the Ripper. I mean, Jack the Ripper killed his victims very swiftly. You know, yeah. he cut their throats, all the, you know, all the uh, 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 atrocities he, he performed on their yeah. bodies you know, were all post-mortem. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, the people that Amy Archer Gilligan and other female poisoners, uh, the victims uh, of those female serial killers, they often died, you know, terrible deaths. Ah, uh, no. Wow. One, one, one that I have to ask for sure, because I had no idea, and I, I would love to know where this one came from, Scream. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, there, there, there never was, you know, a serial killer who dressed up <laughs> in a, you know, in a costume with a mask that looked like, you know, Edvard Munch's The Scream and so on. Um, yeah. But, but the connection there is that Kevin Williamson, uh, who wrote the screenplay, um, was inspired to write it after watching some TV shows uh, about a very, very scary serial killer named Danny Rowling. Uh, that you might have heard of, who is known as the Gainesville Ripper, um, oh. who who would break into the into the homes of these college students uh, at the University of Florida in Gainesville, uh, and uh, you know, and, and and butcher them in horrible ways, uh, and and that oh. let you know that was the inspiration, uh, the acknowledged inspiration uh, for Kevin mm-hmm. Williamson. So. As I said, the guy's name was Danny Rowling, and he became known as the Gainesville Ripper. Uh, so that was the, uh, you know, that was the connection to Scream. Wow, um, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah I um, had, I had no idea. No, yeah. I didn't either. Uh, well, that's yeah, the point of my like book. Yeah, like a comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we've got to read your book. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Hills Have Eyes. I don't remember how far back Sonny Bean goes, but I had yeah. no idea that was based on. That can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, well, there's some uh, question whether well, Sonny Bean uh, was supposedly the head of this family in uh, Scotland um, who took to the wilderness and preyed on. Uh, preyed on all these travelers and they lived, supposedly they lived in a cave and, you know, they would uh, waylay these travelers and bring them back, dismember them and consume them. They were cannibals and it yeah. was an incestuous clan. It was this very, very brutish clan. And, and, uh, and, and that was again uh, the direct inspiration for, 
the Wes Craven movie, The Hills Have Eyes, where you have ah. a similar kind of family. Yeah, the thing about uh-huh. the Sony Bean thing um, is for, for, for a very long time, it was just accepted as historical fact. You know, this is going back, by the way, to the 1500s. Um, oh, okay. is when, oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, supposedly, you know, supposedly the Sony Bean family was uh, uh, committing these atrocities uh, back in the, in the fi- late 1500s during the reign mm-hmm. of uh, James VI of Scotland. Um, but historians, more recent historians who have looked into the Sony Bean stories, you know, think that it's pretty much legend. Um, there hasn't mm-hmm. really been, uh, you know, any kind of confirmation of it in terms of historical evidence. It's not unclear when the stories, you know, when legends about Sony Bean and his cannibal clan sprang up. But in any case, uh, that's what inspired the late great Wes Craven to create Hills Have Eyes. Ah, wow. Yes. No. Yeah. No, I haven't seen that since it was new back in the last century. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, as I said, I mean, you know, the book deals with classics like Arsenic and Olace or um, one of my all-time favorite movies, Double Indemnity. Oh, uh, tell us about that. Yeah. yeah, You know, first... uh, you know, widely considered the first film noir, which again mm-hmm. was based on a novel by James M. Kane, who also wrote The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Kane's inspiration was uh, one of the uh, sensational cases of the 1920s, this Ruth Snyder, Judd Gray case. Uh, Snyder, Ruth Snyder was a Queen's housewife with this trapped in an unhappy marriage and she uh, embarked on an affair with a a very meek and mousy corset salesman named Judd Gray. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, under her instigation, the two conspired to murder uh, Ruth's husband. Um, You know, and before they did it, she took out a double indemnity insurance policy on him so that mm-hmm. if he was killed in some kind of accident, she would get twice as much money. Uh, anyway, they, they, you know, they, they believe they committed this perfect crime, but it, they, they bungled it so much they were arrested within hours, really. Um, but it became a hugely, hugely sensational case. Again, another one of these crimes of the century, partly because Ruth was seen as a kind of personification of a lot of what middle America was very afraid of at the time. You know, she was seen as this uh, woman who uh, was uh, as a flapper, you know, back oh, yeah. then there was a sense that, you know, society was being destroyed by all these young people <laughs> who were oh, yeah. uh, abandoning, you know, the traditional morality and living these fast lives and, so, um, yeah, so, so Double Indemnity was based on the Ruth Snyder Judd Gray case. And another thing I mentioned that's interesting, the, uh, Ruth Snyder became the subject of what is considered to be the most famous newspaper photograph in the history of tabloid journalism. Um, okay. Because 
uh, on the day of her execution, the Daily News uh, hired this famous photographer named Thomas Howard, uh, who was uh, mostly worked in Chicago. And he, he somehow, uh, you know, I, well, I guess because he was a representative of the Daily News, um, he was allowed to witness her execution. And he managed mm-hmm. to get a kind of front row seat. And he had um, rigged uh, this uh, uh, ankle camera. He had a little camera strapped to his ankle. Uh, and he had a release that ran up his pants into his pocket. And at the moment... <laughs> to pull the switch, (laughs) Thomas Howard snapped a picture of Ruth Snyder being electrocuted. And that run or that picture, you can, you can check it out online. I mean, it's, you know, they have this daily news headline. It says dead, you know, in like big bold letters. And then there's Thomas Howard's photograph. But the interesting thing was they made a little, they made a Jimmy Cagney movie called Picture Snatcher. Uh, which was based on on Thomas Howard, uh, and at the end of that movie, he does something very. Jimmy Cagney does something very very similar. Uh-huh. Wow! <laughs> wow! I oh, love it. Fascinating. You know, this is this is great. I I the thing that I, you know, I love about what you do, um, and it's not it's not just this. I mean, you you do you do cover a lot of the big ones that we all know about, but you really tend mm-hmm. to. You're you're one of the authors who really does put uh, focus on a lot of the lesser known stuff, and hmm. I appreciate that because yeah. I I, I didn't even too. know I'd never even heard of I'd never even heard of Jane Toppin and a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of them until I started getting into your books and and so yeah. you know that's it's a really fascinating subject and as as yeah. you know fictional writers it's very fascinating and informative for us so we appreciate oh, yeah. it thank you for doing it well, and uh, what are you yeah. What are you working on now? And I, I see you all the time on TV. There's all kinds of shows. You're on all the time. You're very busy. You must be very busy. What are you, what is, what's up next? <laughs> well, actually, uh, it's funny you should say that. You know, that is a real interest of mine. I'm, I'm very interested in why certain crimes, um, you know, become these part of our cultural mythology. Again, like Leopold and Loeb or Lizzie Borden. Oh, yeah. Or, and, you know, and then right. others, which are at least as horrific, sometimes way more horrific, um, that do become sometimes nationwide sensations and fade very quickly, you know, from the collective memory. So actually, mm-hmm. uh, I do have another book coming out. It won't be out till next April, um, but it's a book I'm very proud of. It's a book about what's called the Bath School Disaster of 1927. Um uh, which is the worst school massacre in U.S. history. And it was also the worst no. act of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh uh, blew up that building in, in Oklahoma City. And nobody, well, not nobody, but, but you know, very few people have heard of it. Um, right, that school right. disaster, which happened in this small town called Bath, Michigan, about in, not too far from Lansing, actually, um, in 1927, a very respected member of the community uh, named Andrew Kehoe, who was on the school board uh, and had access to the what they call the consolidated school. You know, back then, um, there was a movement in the Midwest and other parts of the country uh, 
to eliminate all these one-room schoolhouses and bring all the students from kindergarten up through high school into one big building. They called it a consolidated school. And the people of Bath uh, built this very modern, very handsome consolidated school. Anyway, Kehoe, for a variety of reasons, um, who was becoming increasingly unstable, though nobody recognized it, uh, spent weeks sneaking into the school building at night and rigging the basement with explosives. Uh, oh, and wow. Set a timer, set a timer to go off um, on the last day of school, uh, ah. and it did. He, he planned to wow. destroy the entire school, and if he had, he basically would have killed essentially every child in the community. Uh-huh. Um, but but uh, wow. fortunately, a lot of it didn't go off. But but he did, you know. But one whole wing of the school um, blew up, and and some thirty eight children were killed, wow. uh, and a number of school teachers were killed. And then, when everybody started running to help, Kehoe loaded up his. Uh, Ford pickup with more explosives and shrapnel drove Uh, down to the scene of the explosion and blew himself and a bunch of what we now call first responders up. So mm -hmm. he was also kind of suicide bomber. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so, you know. Wow. Well, we are going to... Yeah, and I've never even heard of it. That's crazy. No, I've never even I've no. never even heard of this. I, we are going to yeah. keep in touch, and we're gonna we're gonna follow up because we would love to have you back in April, right, to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, you are. We we love having you. You are so entertaining. Yeah. I just I love it. I I just oh, we could do this forever. Yeah. Well, no, you're, like welcome. The you're welcome. Always happy to be good, here anytime. Good. Great. Um, we will be and in touch. We'll be in touch, and we're looking forward to to reading ripped from the headlines. Uh, this is a oh, very yeah. uh, fascinating take on some um, lesser known crimes and uh, the, the offhand ways they inspired some of our favorite movies. So um, check it out. It's called Ripped from the Headlines. And uh, Harold, when does it come out? And where can people find out more about you? Well, it it actually is out. The official pub date was, I guess, this Tuesday, the seventh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, So there's a Kindle edition. Yeah. For for reasons I'm not entirely sure of, the Kindle version delayed for a week. So people who prefer to read it on Kindle will have to wait until the 14th. Um, But the hardcover and softcover version. uh, which are both very handsome, I have to say, uh, are now available. You know, you can get it at Amazon. Great. Um, and uh, yeah, and people can yeah, like, people just Google my name. I do have a. There is a web page haroldschechter.com. Um, okay. So, yeah. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, it was a pleasure as always, and uh, yes. we're looking forward to the next time. And you, you be good and be safe and. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, you too. We love it. (laughs) We do. Thanks so much. And uh, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next week, we wish you a haunted night and sweet screams. Thank you for listening.
Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. <laughs> 